You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. And welcome to episode 50, the big 5-0 of Belaboured. This week in labour news, today is actually, well, Friday that is, um, is actually when the Supreme Court is considering a case that just won't seem to die. Um, it is the uh, case of uh, Ask Me, American Federation of State County Municipal Employees Council versus Governor Rick Scott over an executive order that he issued back in 2011 uh, mandating the suspicionless drug testing of all state employees as well as um, applicants for state jobs. Um, So basically what he tried to do was impose a blanket policy that would subject anyone seeking or um, working in a state position to a mandatory drug test. The uh, American Civil Liberties Union and the union objected to this on the grounds that it violated the Fourth Amendment uh, prohibition against unreasonable search and seizure. Um, If you think about it, it might sound like something, you know, just like any other drug testing policy that private employers use. But when you're talking about a workforce of well over 20,000 people um, all being subjected to a test on no suspicion whatsoever that they did anything in violation of the law or of their workplace policy. Uh, And, you know, they're working in positions in many cases that don't really have a legitimate public safety concern to impose a suspicionless drug test on anyone. Uh, it raises all sorts of complicated constitutional questions. Um, and you might remember uh, another policy that Rick Scott pushed forward and the legislature enacted it around the same time, which was the mandatory drug testing of welfare applicants. Um, basically, that subjected people who were seeking public benefits to urinate into a cup and basically subject themselves to a pretty humiliating uh, procedure that was invasive of their body and their personal dignity. So both of these policies taken together are essentially an an effort to demonize the poor, to um, operate on the assumption and perpetuate the stereotype that people who are somehow benefiting from taxpayer dollars, either as employees of the state or as beneficiaries of um, state welfare, that they are somehow up to no good, that they are unworthy, that they should be viewed with suspicion. So both of these policies taken together um, amount to basically uh, sort of pre-criminalizing people who are involved with the public institutions that are there to make our state run. So this case is actually going up to the Supreme Court after a number of appeals, but it's essentially been moribund because a lower court struck it down on the same constitutional grounds. So the Supreme Court will be conferencing on it. Hopefully they will just remand it back to the lower court and let the lower court decision stand. But it's amazing that Governor Rick Scott continues to press this in court as if it's, you know, um, the state's God-given right and of a vital public interest that we just keep on drug testing these people with no suspicion whatsoever. It really says a lot about how, you know, the governor treats public workers in Florida, and it should be alarming to anyone who believes that, you know, whether you're rich or poor or work for the state or work for a private employer, you have constitutional rights. So this week in the the latest developments in the struggle in Seattle to be the first city in the country to become, to have a $15 an hour minimum wage, there's a fun little compromise, and I say that with all of the air quotes in the world, 
being floated by a group that is backed by the Seattle Chamber of Commerce and the National Restaurant Association. This compromise would require companies to pay their workers the equivalent of $15 per hour in wages and benefits. That would include tips, healthcare expenses, job training, transportation stipends, and any other benefit they could possibly think of would all count towards $15 an hour. Unsurprisingly, people have pointed out that this is not actually a $15 an hour minimum wage. And sort of hilariously, when I I tweeted the article that friend of the podcast Ned Resnikoff wrote about this, and the group One Seattle found me on Twitter and proceeded to try to explain to me that all of these workers in Seattle are actually already making $15 an hour, and thus they don't need a raise. They suggested that I read their website and do my research. I also suggested that they perhaps Google me before trying to explain to me the wages of workers in Seattle, something I sort of know a few things about. In any case, the 15 Now movement has responded to this and to the ongoing debate and drama about the issue by putting forward a proposal to put the $15 an hour minimum wage on the ballot, basically saying if you, city council, mayor, everybody else who has something to say about this, can't come up with a deal that works, we'll put it to the voters who 70% of voters in Seattle, according to polls, support the, the actual $15 an hour minimum wage. So yet again, another attempt to redefine workers' wages downward, you know, and hand ring over small businesses going out of business in order to, right. well, deny and, low and wage workers a raise. stuff in a really condescending way. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really funny when people tell me to Google things. Yeah. Anyway. Right. And of course, you know, if they're all making that lovely $15 an hour wage already, passing the law should be no problem, right? I mean, mm-hmm. why not? I know, I know. It's totally right? redundant. It's, why not yeah, Why not just give them that little extra assurance? But alas, I think alas. So from Seattle to the other side of the Pacific in China, um, there's my segue. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, the, uh, there's actually some very interesting labor unrest uh, percolating up in, uh, well, all over China, really, all over southern China. So um, uh, this week I had an article rounding up some of the recent labor actions, um, and they are uh, taking place in the courts and also taking place in the streets. Um, the government uh, recently showed just how intolerant it is of labor organizing when it charged a labor activist named Wu Gujin uh, with the formal charge was gathering a crowd and disturbing the order of public transportation, i.e. blocking traffic during a protest. (laughs) Um, This is just simply not done in China, but um, in the southern city of Shenzhen, there was a Hong Kong-owned furniture maker that had um, repeatedly failed to um, make good on its contract and support workers in a compensation dispute. And this man, who's essentially the designated worker representative in negotiations, he had actually tried to you know, keep the negotiations going and actually tried to dissuade his fellow co-workers from taking more drastic actions. But his co-workers went ahead and uh, staged a spontaneous protest. And what ended up happening was uh, they uh, cracked down on him. They have detained him for several months. And he is uh, now facing these very serious charges for doing nothing but being a labor organizer. Um, Another case, which is sort of similar, is um, the 
dealing with security guards at the Guangzhou Chinese Medicine University Hospital, and they were also charged with, um, you know, that familiar charge of gathering a crowd to disturb social order. They were detained for months, and they were uh, sort of arbitrarily imprisoned, and at a trial that was um, very haphazard, delayed, you know, botched, um, they ended up uh, being sentenced to eight or nine month jail terms, um, that was including time served, and um, basically, it's an effort at damage control because the uh, verdict ended up not being as severe as it could have been. It's mainly an effort just to quiet um, the social unrest that's been going on. But it is a sign of things to come because it shows that workers in China are increasingly willing to exercise their rights regardless of what the uh, letter of the law says in China. And finally, there's also action going on in the streets. It's not just workers being persecuted in the courts. We have about 30,000 people at uh, the Taiwanese-owned Yueyuan Industrial Shoe Manufacturer going on strike in the southern city of Dongguan. And according to the NGO China Labor Watch, you know there have been fierce crackdowns by riot police. There have been several arrests, but that has not stopped um, 30,000 employees from basically uh, undergoing a work stoppage in order to compel the company to make good on their promises to provide social insurance to all of the workers and also to pay into the workers' housing fund. These are mandatory payments that they are owed. I just want to repeat that this is 30,000 workers at a single workplace going on strike in a single Chinese city in a country where there is no formal legal right to strike, essentially, and there is no independent labor movement. So that's actually something quite notable to watch in the uh, world's you know biggest manufacturing hub. And if they start, you know, getting together and doing more of these actions, and we might really see some changes that ripple up across the globe. Well, it sounds like they have an independent labor movement, even if they don't have independent labor unions. Oh, yes. And of course, what the what is officially said in China is almost the exact opposite, <laughs> inevitably, of whatever is going on in the streets. So stay tuned. Speaking of spontaneous worker action, slightly fewer workers, but slightly closer to home here. Um, a few weeks ago on the podcast, I told you about 250 workers at UPS in Maspeth, Queens, who walked out of the job after one of their co-workers was fired. Fast forward to last week, those 250 workers now have their jobs back. They had been told they would be fired. 20 of them had been chosen at random and actually fired followed by another 17 workers after a rally at City Hall that featured several members of the City Council and public advocate Letitia James. In addition to the rallies at City Hall, the rallies at the UPS workplace, there were petitions on the internet with over 100,000 signatures backed by the Working Families Party. And the thing that really seems to have turned around UPS's determination to fire all 250 workers was the fact that the workers who were let go went and talked to their customers. And they made some videos talking to those customers where their customers said, what can Brown do for me? Give me my driver back. It seems that if you tell a small business that you fired the worker that they are used to and like, they're not real pleased with your business plan. So all of the 250 workers are now getting... 10-day suspensions, which in the case of the workers who were already let go, they had already pretty much served. And the worker, Stephen Curcio, who I spoke to, told me that everyone learned something from this, and he expects the boss to treat them a little bit better from now on. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. 
For our conversation this week, we are joined by Socket Sony, who is the executive director of the National Guest Worker Alliance and the New Orleans Workers Center for Racial Justice. We've talked about the National Guest Worker Alliance's work on this podcast several times before, and this week we'll be discussing their work. We'll be discussing the broader struggle for fair and just immigration reform, and we'll be asking Socket a few things about the future of work. So your organization caught the attention of the mainstream when you were holding Walmart responsible for the conditions of guest workers packing seafood in Louisiana. Um, can you talk a little bit about this larger strategy of, of bargaining with the people at the top of the supply chain rather than the worker's direct employer? Sure. Um, the Walmart workers were an extraordinary group of men and women who migrated year after year from Sinaloa, Mexico, to Louisiana. They came to pack and peel crawfish, uh, which is a delicacy of Louisiana, very much like shrimp, uh, in the small town of Brobridge that no one had ever heard of down in the Gulf Coast. So these workers, year after year, were uh, processing seafood and year after year were facing extraordinary exploitation and got to the point where they were trapped doing 24-hour shifts uh, in a small factory, uh, living, meanwhile, in trailers on the backyard of the owner of the company. And this company owner is not a member of the 1%. You know, this is a small businessman uh, who probably can barely afford the the workers themselves. So... Uh, These workers brought their grievances to the employer. They wanted to, like all of us, have decent and dignified work. They wanted to be safe. Um, You know, just to give you a little bit of a glimpse into that factory floor, uh, those workers had gotten to the point where they were so sleep-deprived because they were working such long hours that they were reporting actually falling asleep on the factory floor. And their their motor skills, their hands would continue to package these, uh, you know, these crawfish, uh, even as they were falling asleep standing um, at the factory floor. This is a sort of a level of exploitation that, um, you know, would put anyone to shame, but not this boss. Uh, when the workers confronted him, um, he uh, pushed back. Then they called the police. When they called the police, uh, he turned the police officers away and told the workers that he would use his relationships, essentially, to reach their families in Mexico. Um, You know, the implication was that he knew uh, elements of organized crime in Mexico. So these workers, when we met them, had a strategy session with us, and, and, and we said that as seafood workers, you know, they were one among many, Because this employer was a supplier to Sam's Club, which is part of the Walmart empire, they had this opportunity to become Walmart seafood workers and hold the one-tenth of the one percent accountable. You know, their fight in their experience um, was with the owner of CJ's Seafood, but what they also understood was that Walmart was setting up all of the incentives for CJ's to behave the way CJ's did. Um, Of course, there was a great deal of evil inside CJ's seafood, but there was a greater evil, which was the economic incentives 
that made CJ's Seafood cut costs. The owner of CJ's Seafood, Mike LeBlanc, was left figuring out how to make a profit. And the only way he could make a profit was to cut the costs of dignity at the workplace. So these workers came out first attempting to get their problem solved by Mike LeBlanc at CJ's Seafood. But then they took their fight to Walmart um, and demanded that Walmart be held accountable for all of the abuses all the way down the food chain. Um, Now, many people said that these were not Walmart workers, um, that Walmart would never believe it, the media would never believe it, and that the workers themselves would never believe it. Well, it turned out the workers were the first to believe it. They knew they were Walmart workers. Um, The press believed it, and uh, eventually... The workers went from Brobridge, Louisiana, to the doorstep of uh, a Walmart board member in New York and into the pages of the New York Times. And I think these workers successfully proved um, that in the public imagination and widely in the view of most people like you and me, it's a fair expectation that Walmart clean up all of the abuses all the way down the supply chain. So, you know, this was a case study of how so much work in the United States is changing as more and more work is fragmented, as more and more workers are working on supply chains or working in the service industry or working for subcontractors. In essence, the ultimate beneficiaries of the labor, uh, the ultimate people who are profiting from the labor, are not direct employers anymore. Waltons are not signing the paycheck uh, of Ana Rosa Diaz, but the Waltons um, still are responsible for the economic conditions and labor conditions faced by Ana Rosa Diaz at the workplace. And that was the contention. People believed it. And a lot of people who were not seafood workers in Louisiana identified with these workers because these workers were telling a bigger story about how work is changing and the future of work and what kind of new accountability structures need to be set up in place for this set of people who are profiting but aren't the direct employers of these workers. Mm-hmm. And out of curiosity, how did they initially come to your attention? Or how did you initially, how did they find you? Well, you know, our, our organizers are in touch with hundreds of workers um, in the seafood industry every year. Uh, we know them in Sinaloa and other places where they live in Mexico. We meet them season after season in uh, Louisiana. Uh, And these workers we met through one of our normal outreach visits um, that we do out into the um, rural Gulf Coast, um, you know, to meet with these workers. We actually initially thought that these workers should prepare for a campaign the following year when they left and then came back, that they would be much more prepared. Um, they didn't want to wait till the following year. They wanted a campaign in the next two weeks, and so we had to brace up and get prepared. So you've noted that the conditions of, of these guest workers are becoming largely more and more the conditions of most American workers. Can you talk about the way that this exclusion of certain workers from existing labor protections has helped create these conditions? Yeah, absolutely. This growing story that is gaining traction in the United States 
that we're becoming a nation of entrepreneurs, you know, a kind of a country of creatives, baristas, free agents, and the, the gig economy, uh, the gig economy, right. and um, you know, and it sounds fantastic. Um, if only anyone in the gig economy actually felt like they were in a gig economy. Um, in fact, uh, millions of workers are working more than ever for less than ever. Uh, productivity has actually gone up. Numbers of hours people are working has gone up. Um, but wages have stagnated. And the people who are going from job to job, piecing together a life with three part-time jobs, uh, or picking up temp work week after week, seven years into a job are still classified as temp workers. Uh, like the workers you featured in your great article, um, Sarah, which if uh, people listening haven't read, they should read. Uh, what was it called again? With the, the, uh, temps? the temps? Forever Temp? Forever Temp, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, that's part of a growing story about work in America. You know, I think the history of it can be traced back to women, people of color, southern workers, including farm workers and domestic workers, being left out of the New Deal. The New Deal was struck uh, to essentially save the country from the impending doom uh, that was the growing labor movement and poor people's movement. Right. To save there capitalism. Were, to save <laughs> capitalism. Um, you know, there was an extraordinary sense that uh, something big was happening in the country from the coal mines um, to everywhere else. Um, you know, there were mass actions that workers were taking um, to demand dignity. And there was a new deal struck. And a few things happened in the New Deal that were important. Firstly, uh, workers largely in the South, largely black workers and other workers of color uh, and women workers were left out. Um, but secondly, there came to be an agreement between state and capital, between employers um, and government, that benefits in this country would largely come to workers through union contracts. So not only were workers left out of the right to organize, the right to get together collectively and win rights and respect through a contract. They were also left out of the emerging safety net in this country um, and the emerging set of protections in this country uh, because most of those, like pensions and retirement security, health care, came through a union contract. And that set of workers continued to organize nonetheless, continued to fight for more, continued to uh, build organizations. And here we are today where m those workers who used to be once described as marginal are actually the majority. So, you know, it used to be that people would think of the American worker, the classic American worker, as a uh, factory worker with a union contract, usually a white male factory worker. Well, since then, the workforce has changed. The majority of the workforce is now women. Work has changed. The majority of workers are now workers in the service economy, workers um, outside of the manufacturing sector, and the employment relationship has changed. So um, the adjunct professor can now um, identify with the agricultural worker because both are working for piece rate pay. Um, the agricultural workers, you know, picking strawberries is fighting for a penny more pay per pound 
and the adjunct professor is teaching uh, one class at a time uh, for a certain amount of money. And so what's happened is that the, the, the workforce in this country is taking a look at itself and realizing we, we hadn't really reflected back to ourselves how much things had changed, what does this all mean. And more and more, what used to be an image of a large canopy provided by law, most workers covered underneath it, and a few workers outside in the rain, which was how most people imagined it, um, has now become that the workforce has grown around that canopy, and most workers in this country are no longer covered uh, by existing laws, by most labor protections, and most importantly, no longer covered by the sort of the the general politics, um, you know, uh, that allow for organizing. Right to work is spreading from state to state. Uh, subcontracting and and low standards in the service economy are upending the ability of workers to have a standard at work. And so those CJ's workers, the workers on the Walmart supply chain in Louisiana, um, aren't really an exception to the rule as they are a an extreme um, version of the rule. Um, that workplace, CJ's Seafood, in that small town in Louisiana, is the workplace at the end of the road if our economy continues on this low road. Um, that's why those workers are so important, not because they're marginal or because they're the miner's canary, but because they're emblematic, in fact, the growing majority, and they hold a crystal ball uh, for us to see where the economy is going and where jobs are going if we don't intervene. Mm-hmm. Right. The exception that proves the rule in some ways. Um, and so going back to you know, the specific group of um, of workers that you have uh, focused a lot of your campaigning around, um, these guest workers who come on special employment visas, which is generally just, you know, the only, the, the most basic channel for, you know, legal immigration um, in, in the country right now. Um, I recall one of your more recent labor victories has been around the uh, the young guest workers of the McDonald's franchises, and that really made waves because it brought together all these strands of, you know, at the same time we had a fast food worker organizing movement going on for, you know, just... Um, for all, uh, you know, American fast food workers. And then you also had it intersecting with immigration in this way, uh, in the sense that you had these workers who had basically been imported from overseas um, to fill these, you know, under really fraudulent uh, you know, pr- uh, pretexts in some in some cases. And uh, and they're sort of uh, ultra-exploited in these positions. And, and it happened to be under, you know, a household name that everyone knows. So it had these elements that really, I think, resonated with a very broad public. And I think you, uh, you sort of frame that strategically because you said that, you know, this really showed that uh, the interest of so-called native workers and that of the migrant workers were really aligned, um, not just conceptually, but also like materially in terms of the actual work that they were doing. Um, so can you can you talk about how, as a campaigner, you kind of um, navigate that, you know, what is often, um, you know, held up as sort of an artificial divide between the so-called native-born workers and the and the guest workers, or the U.S. worker versus the foreign worker. But how do you how do you work within that sort of political division or tension that might exist, and kind of turn it into something that is a platform for solidarity? Absolutely. The McDonald's example is a good one. Um, these workers arrived into Pennsylvania um, to work at a McDonald's 
alongside uh, furloughed uh, prisoners and refugees. So there were three classes of workers in these McDonald's stores. Um, all of these workers were pitted against each other competing for hours and competing for attention and low wages. And when the guest workers attempted to campaign, McDonald's said, well, you know, uh, the real employer is a franchisee. And the entire franchisee system, in a sense, is constructed to push all responsibility down um, so that McDonald's has no uh, burden of responsibility for labor standards. Much McDo the way Walmart outsources. Right. You know. That's right. That's right. And uh, uh, amazingly, McDonald's actually has higher standards for aesthetics and food production, food uh, presentation in its stores uh, than for any kind of labor standards. Um, the best example, I would say, of both the challenges and um, opportunities to build solidarity between local workers and newly arrived immigrant workers uh, in recent years that that I've seen uh, is emblematized in actually a different campaign in the same place a few years before this McDonald's strike in Pennsylvania, uh, a month before Occupy, we were organizing in the Hershey Chocolate Factory. Um, this was a campaign that got a lot of attention because a month before Occupy, there were uh, workers who um, uh, walked off the assembly line in an emblematic American corporation uh, in an iconic U.S. industry, manufacturing and logistics. They walked off the assembly line and they held hands. And a month before Occupy, they occupied the factory. They sang... Uh, famous uh, partisan song from Italy called Ciao Bella, which had been imported from there to resistance movements and protest movements across Asia and the Middle East. Um, and because there were Turkish workers in the mix who knew the song, these Turkish workers had taught it to the Chinese workers, and the Chinese workers now were singing with the Turkish workers and workers it's from like all the over United the United Nations or it something. It was a <laughs> United Nations of workers inside middle Pennsylvania right. in the heart of the Hershey factory. And these workers were holding hands and occupying the factory. Outside, um, representatives from the labor movement and community groups and residents from Pennsylvania were blocking traffic um, to assist the strike uh, and were committing an act of civil disobedience to lend their voice and credibility to the strike. And even more extraordinary uh, was the fact of who these workers were. They were guest workers on visas between the ages of about 19 and 23. They had come to work for the Hershey factory believing that they would be on a cultural exchange program. Um, they were instead on the factory floor earning $1 to $5 an hour, being treated to captive audience meetings and threatened with deportation for their organizing. So somebody told them in their home countries that they would experience American culture, and they did. Right. Well, it's That's interesting right. because many of them were students, right? I mean, essentially, they were coming for an educational purpose. They probably didn't even really see it as, you know, work the way many migrant workers do. That's right. They had come on a, on a program that was a relic of the Cold War era. Um, they thought they were coming for a set of exchanges to learn about American culture and work along the way to pay for it. Um, 
It turned out that going on strike in the middle of Hershey, Pennsylvania, was their cultural experience, and it was the experience of a lifetime. It changed them forever, and um, that night, uh, the night of the strike, um, the workers assembled in the historic union hall of the Baker's local, uh, the Chocolate Workers Union out there in Pennsylvania, which itself had been formed uh, out of a sit-down strike in another era, in 1937. And these workers wanted what all workers wanted. They wanted rights and respect, and they wanted a contract, but they were also demanding that upon their return to their home countries, uh, these jobs should be given back to the working families of Pennsylvania. And, you know, when you step back a bit, what united the local workers and these arriving guest workers was the story of this Hershey factory. These workers were coming to Hershey. Hershey said, I'm not the employer. Talk to a large global contractor called Excel. They're your real employer. Excel pushed them off down the chain to a small temp agency, which pushed them down to the recruiter. The workers were not only at the bottom of factory floor, but they were at the bottom of a four-layer deep subcontracting chain um, that once again denied workers' power and denied the Hershey Corporation uh, any responsibility. And what had really happened was over the last 10 years, Hershey had changed its business model, turning union jobs into these temp jobs and eventually these global temp jobs. Now, what these workers were demanding was not only that they be treated fairly, but that the jobs be restored back to direct employment and fair employment, you know, the way that they once were. And it's it's an extraordinary uh, uh, thing that those workers did, an extraordinary story. I'll never forget the kind of real uh, connection based on, uh, you know, based on these workers and their vision um, for all the people around them in Pennsylvania uh, when these workers sat down, door-knocked and sat down with residents, uh, they were received with open arms and embraced. Um, people were shocked to hear what was happening, and they wanted to do something about it. The, the story is instructive because it turned out that the campaign was much more about the changing nature of work and Hershey's role in the Pennsylvania economy than it was about the treatment of just one or two or 250 workers. Um, That's an ongoing struggle that immigrant workers and local workers, undocumented and documented workers, all can band together around. Um, And again and again in campaigns, once we've stepped back from who is working now to what set of decisions came together in a corporate office somewhere to construct the work the way it is, it does unify people. Um, that's what we learned again and again in Hershey and in McDonald's and on the CJ's seafood uh, floor in the in on the Walmart supply chain. Right, and I think it really speaks to the need for kind of like a movement thinking about these things in terms of just um, um, it, it, you know when you're struggling just to survive, it's very difficult to sort of step back and you know sort of conceptualize the big picture of you know what it means to work and how your labor is valued. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the um, existing tension that we see between you know U.S. workers and immigrant workers often boils down to people being in extremely desperate situations and wanting to um, you know consolidate any kind of economic security that they have that's familiar. 
to them. And, and then it turns into a very, um, you know, harmful zero-sum game in a lot of ways, which is unfortunate. But, of course, you know, that is that is the politics of, of you know, why we need movement building on a, and, and coalition building, right? That's right. Um, and um, I just want to, just uh, to clarify for our readers, um, uh, the... What separates a guest worker from, say, uh, any other immigrant worker who is here, perhaps undocumented, which is um, the issue of undocumented workers, of course, takes up um, uh, perhaps, you know, the bulk of the political space around immigration in Washington right now. But uh, talk specifically about the position that these uh, the role these these uh, workers occupy in the economy in the sense that they are sort of quasi legal workers. Right. And yet they are denied the same rights as ordinary American citizens who are working. That's right. That's right. Well, on a spectrum of permanent, good, predictable work on one hand um, that come with union rights and benefits, um, on the other end of that spectrum, way on the other end, is the guest worker um, who is often coming through a recruiter and then placed through a labor contractor at a company and working up a supply chain for an end user that is a corporate Goliath. Um, other people are somewhere in the middle, and in this country right now, there are 12 million undocumented workers who are uh, waging a very inspiring movement to win rights and respect. Um, and there are about a million guest workers. And again and again, throughout the different chapters of this country's immigration debate, um, politicians and um, business have tried to come together around creating a vast temporary worker program in this country so that workers could come uh, to the country legally and, um, and work for certain periods of time and then leave uh, and perhaps come back. It's been framed again and again as a win-win situation. Um, and our organization, the National Guest Worker Alliance, actually formed during the last immigration debate when uh, President Bush at the time was proposing a guest worker program and the Chamber of Commerce and others were coming on board. The problem was in the rooms that that was being discussed, there were no guest workers to talk from direct experience about what it really is. They weren't invited. Um, And so we decided to invite ourselves. Um, There was a group of guest workers that came to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where incredibly, while... Um, some say 80% of the population was actually looking for work. Employers certified to the Department of Labor that um, they couldn't find willing and able workers. Well, they could find workers. They just didn't want to, they just didn't find workers who could work at the extraordinary low low wages um, that these employers wanted to pay. They wanted a captive workforce, an on-call workforce, and a workforce that could uh, work twice as much for half as much. And that's exactly what they got. Perfectly within the letter of the law, too. That's That's right. Absolutely legal. That's That's right. right. So the most incredible example of it was uh, that there was a hotel on Canal Street on the corner of Canal and Bourbon that was housing unemployed residents of New Orleans who had been displaced after Katrina. Uh, These were people who had nowhere to go. They needed jobs in order to return home. Um, And the hotel had won large numbers of FEMA contracts uh, through the government and was being paid to house these people. So 
Now, this hotel determined that it needed housekeepers and maintenance clerks and receptionists. If they really needed those workers, they could have knocked on any one of the doors on any one of the floors of their hotels. We were outreaching in that hotel to workers willing and ready to work and desperate for employment. Instead, this hotel brought in guest workers from Peru, Bolivia, and the Dominican Republic who came to the country and worked 12 to $14 an hour jobs for just above $6 an hour. And they worked all the time, and they were on call, and many of them were forced then to perform day labor above and beyond their job for their employers. And these were workers on the H-2B visa? These were workers on a visa called the H-2B visa, which simply means that they were uh, not farm workers and not high-tech workers, but workers in low-wage um, jobs. And, you know, these workers um, didn't experience their visa or their legal status um, as a liberating and, uh, and uh, freedom-giving uh, vehicle that they were here legally, could work, um, and could, you know, be tourists in the nighttime and then go back home uh, after eight months. They experienced the visa uh, as a a, a real ball and chain that connected them uh, to the employer. Workers on these visas are tied to their employers. Um, You can't just leave and work for anyone else. And uh, upon being fired, you can be deported. So when these workers asked for basic labor rights, um, employers and their representatives in post-Katrina New Orleans were telling them, well, if you want labor rights, then take the next plane home. Um, These workers couldn't afford to take the next plane home because they had often incurred enormous debt, borrowing money to pay for the visas. So these workers came in uh, not at zero, but somewhere between... $3,000 3000 and $20,000. Yes. It's debt peonage. That's right. Oh, yeah. And then they were working for these employers, and then they were, um, you know, they were facing retaliation and deportation back into debt mm-hmm. if they took action. They took action anyway, and they formed the National Guest Worker Alliance. And, um, you know, two cycles of the immigrant immigration debate later, we still have, um, to some extent, the same conversation in this country today about, about, guest worker programs as an alternative to, uh, you know, to the problem of undocumented migration. The problem is, you know, the, the U.S. doesn't have an immigration problem. The, the U.S. has an economic situation where most employers um, have enough incentive to hire the most exploitable workers in the low-wage economy. And so... Uh, whether they're undocumented and working through a temp agency or they're documented and working through a guest worker recruiter or labor contractor, um, unless these workers have the power to win a set of aspirations for dignity at work, they will be exploited. Just a visa in hand uh, you know, won't protect you from the kind of labor abuse and coercion. No, it channels you into that abusive system, right? I mean, it's interesting because if you just look at sort of the economics of guest work and like sort of the industries that have been built around, I mean, you have an entire cottage industry of people starting with the recruiter in the home country, right? All the way up to the person who actually, you know, bargains with the the, the employer, often under, you know, uh, using, you know, various means of fraud and and the system of debt. I mean, there's an entire economy that's built around this. And so, you know, when people say guest work, 
as an alternative to undocumented immigrants, right? I mean, that's no. The two systems work in tandem with each other, right? They're interdependent. They're like they're like interlinked, uh, you know, economies of just right. exploitation. Labor migration is not going to go away, right. right? People will continue to leave home in search of work. Um, there is a reason for that. It's because they can't find work in their own hometowns. And we are so used to this phenomenon in most big cities of people leaving poor neighborhoods, crossing over into rich neighborhoods and working there and then coming home. Um, You know, domestic workers do that every day. Uh, Food service workers do that every day. Home care workers do that every day. Day laborers do that every day to work construction. What's happened now is that in the same way, workers are leaving poor countries to go to rich countries and send money home. Now, that's a much more difficult choice to make. When you leave your neighborhood, you come back home at the end of the day and you see your family. Guest workers are people who are making the impossible choice to either be home with their families and their loved ones or to go far away to provide for them because you can't do both. And that's the growing reality of the global economy is that more and more people face that impossible choice and take it and make it uh, every day. Um, And the people we're organizing who are here in the country as guest workers, you know, nonetheless are part of a much bigger U.S. phenomenon as well because uh, they are the global dimension of temp labor, which is growing in the United States, of subcontracting that is growing in the United States. So it's it's true, uh, I think, what you're saying, undocumented workforce and the guest workers aren't two different options as much as part of a system and they feed feed each other. I think it has to be possible for workers to argue for dignified and just migration and protections along the way um, as they migrate from one country to another uh, to find work. You know, that is a basic aspiration and it should be part of uh, the conversation about immigration in this country because most people are coming to work. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, just to um, finish on that thought is, uh, you know, the work that you're doing now with the future of work and trying to, like, envision this broader future of work just to bring it to this, uh, bring immigration into the foreground of that picture because it is a growing part of the workforce and, and inevitably mm-hmm. part of that, you know, that's a trend that is that is unavoidable, right? So in the future of work, in your ideal future of work, would you see something like a guest worker system? Because, I mean, I speak to many immigration activists who want to abolish the idea of a guest worker system altogether and sort of move towards, a you know, um, like a no borders kind of uh, economy. I mean, you know, that obviously sounds very drastic to us who deal with political realities every day. But this idea of, of just if capital is essentially globalized, then, you know, what happens to labor? And then how do you bring that back to, um, you know, the domestic conversation about the future of work in America? Like, what, what do you, where do you see immigration reform, especially with respect to these uh, visa workers playing into that? Well, it's a fair point, point that um, it's not too big an idea to think about money moving around without borders at the touch of a button. Uh, across the world. So why would it be a too big an idea for workers to be able to move around? I think that we often think of the economy as something that is happening to us, uh, that the future of work is um, part of a natural progression. Um, it's inevitable that work is disappearing, that labor standards are declining, that all workers are spiraling down 
uh, in a race to the bottom. Uh, and that just like morning turns into afternoon and it turns into night, uh, it's inevitable that work in this country becomes less and less dignified or disappears altogether. The reality is the economy is not happening to us. Um, the reality is that there are real actors in this, um, that this is happening because of the actions and decisions of real people. And I think we have to contend for uh, a space in the rooms that are constructing the economy. Um, how does the guest worker or the undocumented worker or the documented uh, home care worker or domestic worker uh, or the warehouse worker, um, how, do, how does that worker get back into the driver's seat of the economy so that the new economy is not something that happens, it's something we're driving? Um, and so part of how that's going to happen is if we decide to shape the future of work. Um, natural forces didn't get us here, and natural forces won't get us out. So workers have to actually exercise more than power. They have to actually exercise their political imagination to think about the next economy and build a bridge from this one to the next one. And that's a complicated thing. It'll take years. It won't take five years. It'll take 50 years. But unless we aspire to it and build it, we will be where we are 50 years from now, and it'll be worse. So there are two or three big things that we're thinking about as we think about the future of work. Um, one is that work is changing um, because more and more people don't work for their ultimate employer. Um, they don't work for their real boss. The other is that not working is changing. More and more people are unemployed for longer and longer periods of time. Um, and the third is that workers can now be sourced from anywhere to anywhere. They can be, you know, going down the street to a temp agency to work for a hotel in their city. But that guy at CJ's Seafood, Mike LeBlanc, isn't picking workers from New Orleans or Baton Rouge to work in Brobridge, Louisiana. He's selecting between villages in Mexico. Which village will he go and recruit from? So these are all really upending some, some basic expectations that workers have held for a long time, that I would work where I live or nearby, that if I got enough workers around me and bargained with the person who signs my paycheck, I could, I could earn a higher wage. If I was unemployed, it would only be for a short time and you know, unemployment insurance would take care of me. None of this is true anymore for more and more workers. So the, the question is, how do we imagine the next economy? How do we build the strategies to get there? And absolutely, one prong of the strategy is to have a fair immigration policy in this country. Another prong of, this, of the strategy is to have an actual international worker program where workers could migrate, come in and work, not to undercut, but alongside um, their brothers and sisters in the United States, um, in industries. And, a, and another major part of the strategy, though, is for workers and communities to come together and just fight for higher industry standards and turn bad jobs into good jobs. You know, these were all bad jobs before unions came in and turned them into good jobs. It's now time for workers to come in again and fight for um, that terrible warehouse job, whether it's being done by a guest worker or an undocumented worker, or a U.S.-born worker. Um, it's all of these workers who aren't earning anywhere near even $20,000 a year. How do we turn them into good jobs? 
One of the things about this conversation about the way the economy happens is this obsession with technology, and it's the technology that's changing the way we work, and we just can't really do anything about that. That's inevitable. And of course, that, as you mentioned, sort of leaves out the fact that, no, this is all being shaped by political power. Um, One thing in particular about this sort of this idea that technologically driven unemployment is just our endless future is that, of course, if that's really true, then the answer is we should all be working less. But so one of the things you've talked about is is the need for a 21st century safety net, Mm -hmm. Um, something that understands that unemployment as Mm -hmm. well as employment looks different. That's right. What would that 21st century safety net look like? What are some of the ideas that are are going into that? Mm -hmm. Well, safety net may be um, an incomplete phrase for it. I'm not sure what the best term is. It's some combination of a safety net and a social contract, you know, and a set of guarantees that the state makes to its members. Um, So there's this great fear that the robots are coming. And um, the evidence of it is everywhere. A car that is computerized and driven by a computer gets a driver's license and is allowed to drive. Um, It fills us with great panic. Um, You know, there are now, um, you know, other advances in technology that make it look like that movie, The Sleep Dealer, is coming true, where people are plugging their DNA into a robot and able to control, you know, I must manufacturing have centers far away. A very good movie. Which is actually about immigration, isn't it? It is about immigration. Okay, I'm going to have to watch it. And then, you know, maybe we're destined for uh, another movie, you know, the movie WALL-E, where all the humans have essentially migrated into a giant space capsule, uh, and because they don't work, um, they don't do any physical activity, robots are left to clean up the earth because of environmental decline and humans are off essentially relaxing by a pool for 2,000 years. Oh, I like that movie. Getting bigger. That sounds a lot better. That sounds better than the other option. That's right. I mean, it's all all visions of a kind of apocalypse at the end of, you know, what uh, we imagine as a natural, you know, progression. It's absolutely true technology is happening. It's absolutely true that it is a disruptive force. It's absolutely also true that technology has been happening for a very long time. Um, there were plants, you know, there were there were um, plants that got automated. Uh, there were fields that got automated. Farming got automated. Um, y- you know, it, 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 all of this is, is stuff we've seen before. The question is, what kind of... Um, power will we exert to win basic guarantees in the context of a changing society, which from time to time, people in a democracy have had to do that in many contexts um, as technology has changed uh, the world. So so what would it look like? Well, on one hand, um, work is not going away next year. Um, for the foreseeable... Uh, future in most of our lives, there will be work and lots of it and more and more low-wage work. And so it's important not to be distracted by the robots 
um, and, and continue to organize and fight for labor protections and good jobs. But the safety net or the social contract is incredibly important. Um, if you are a contingent worker, you access fewer benefits. If you're a non-union worker, you access fewer benefits. If you've been unemployed for 27 weeks or more um, and you are part of the ranks of the long-term unemployment, uh, you access fewer benefits. More and more workers across the country are being kicked out of unemployment insurance, for example. Um, so there's a big question of what kind of safety net or social contract can a worker who doesn't have a union contract expect from just being a member of society? And, you know, uh, particularly since work is changing and a worker is perhaps a landscaper on Monday and then on Tuesday is through a temp agency picking up a construction job and then the following week has three days at a restaurant, how does that worker piece together a life that is supported um, when he or she can't piece together a job um, that supports you know, their family? So this is a huge question. Um, there are lots and lots of versions of social contracts and safety nets that don't look like the ones we have in this country. Um, there are a set of um, guarantees that other countries have that we could look at. Uh, in India, you have the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which guarantees 100 days of employment or compensation for not having it to every rural family. That's led to not only jobs, but enormous local organizing opportunity uh, for millions of workers, particularly women workers in farms uh, in rural India. In Scandinavia, there is the very storied and much talked about uh, safety net that includes um, benefits and protections for the unemployed, uh, that includes uh, flex insurance, uh, insurance for the flexible workforce. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, we don't like to be uh, like Scandinavia, but the I would like to be like Scandinavia. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> more, maybe more people that are willing to admit. Yeah, um, um, but it, you know, uh, the, the reality is that that part of the world uh, uh, really survived the recession, the global recession, because it was able to offer these protections um, to the members of its society. And in this country, from time to time, people have dreamed up and created a very different deal than the New Deal and a very different deal than the deal workers have today. Um, for example, construction was an endemically um, contingent industry. Jobs are not long-term. Um, these are short jobs by definition because once you've built something, construction ends. Um, well, a group of people figured out that even though construction is a series of short-term jobs, it's actually possible to line up all those short-term jobs to make career ladders for workers. So workers can get trained, do one kind of construction job, then get trained and do another. Along the way, they can have seniority, they can rise up ranks, employers can pay into a fund, workers can have benefits that travel with them from job to job. Um, this has all happened before. And so I think it's possible for it to happen again. Um, imagine if a, a Walmart worker was able to 
um, get through state legislation the right to determine her schedule a month out and therefore schedule daycare, schedule her life, schedule maybe some time with her kids. Uh, imagine if that Walmart worker working as a cashier had a career ladder all the way up to becoming the IT worker um, who designs Walmart's logistics. Um, you know, there's no reason why we can't have that in place of what we have right now, which is that that Walmart worker uh, doesn't know if she's working the next day, puts everything on hold because she desperately needs to work the next day, and at best gets a job uh, as a permatemp for Walmart where her wages are the same and her position in the company is the same for years out, and she can never dream of becoming eventually a worker who climbs up a ladder because there's no ladder to climb. Or living without public benefits, which is another, right. which then ends up being draining the system in another That's way. That's right. That's right. That's right. So it's really a combination of a safety net, a social contract, and a ladder to climb in the economy that I think need to be pieced together. And that was Saket Soni, the executive director of the National Guest Worker Alliance and head of the New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice. And now for our favorite part of the podcast. It's ARG. I wish I'd written that. This is where we give you our picks for the week of the pieces that we wish we had written but did not. So my pick for the week is a piece by Dean Baker in Jacobin. And it was actually excerpted from a compendium that they put out uh, about teachers organizing. But uh, they printed it online and it's up this week. It's called Education is Not the Answer. And I know that sounds like anathema to all of you who believe that education is the answer to everything. And it's true, education is a social good. But um, what Dean Baker does is he uh, takes his economist eye and he dispels a lot of myths about what public education can and cannot do. And he basically comes to the conclusion that this theory that education will reduce inequality and fix all that's wrong with society in terms of poverty and um, social division. Um, Unfortunately, it's not really true. Um, It's true that education is a good thing that we should all value, but we tend to ascribe a lot of uh, abilities to schools in terms of their role in society that um, don't really um, don't really work out. We tend to uh, see them as these vessels of opportunity that you know if we just do the right things with our schools, they will cure everything bad about um, the capitalist system. When in reality, they are a, a pillar of the society that they exist in, um, but they will not be the solution. They're not the end-all be-all. The school reform movement currently is failing in this regard to conceptualize a broader vision of social change that looks at schools as part of the solution, but does not, you know, seek to credit them with, uh, you know, every possible social solution that could come up, and it doesn't seek to blame them for everything that can go wrong with the way society is raising the next generation. Dean Baker notes, people with more education have, it's true, on average, done better than those with less education, but the growth in inequality over the last three decades has not been mainly a story of the more educated pulling away from the less educated. Rather, it has been a story in which a relatively small group of people, roughly the top 1%, have been able to garner the bulk 
bulk of economic gains for reasons that have little direct connection to education. So correlation is not causation. People who are super rich and are hoarding all the wealth of this country, um, you know, they're doing pretty well. It's not because they're educated. It's because they're just really freaking rich. And that also happens to buy them educational advantage as well. So when we need to look towards a solution to inequality, we need to be looking beyond what schools can do. At the same time, schools are incredibly valuable as social institutions, not because they help equalize income directly or they somehow magically reduce inequality all on their own, but because they seed in children a sense of civic responsibility, a sense of citizenship a sense of democracy. Um, sadly, all these fancy schmance education reform initiatives, they actually do the opposite. They seek to marketize schools. They seek to turn them into things, entities that operate more or less like corporations. They seek data-driven solutions to turn our children into effective workers, compliant workers, and uh, you know people who conform to this artificial notion of success, and in doing so, ends up destroying their childhoods and creativities and imaginations, and also you know ends up making teachers' jobs really hard as well. So, um, you know, Dean Baker concludes, this pattern of inequality will be little affected by improving the educational outcomes for the bottom quarter, or even the bottom half, but education is good for other reasons. Literacy, basic numeracy skills, and critical thinking are an essential part of a fulfilling life. Note, those are not things that you can easily attach a monetary value to, but nonetheless, we should start valuing them outside of whatever they give us in terms of our pocketbooks. Uh, I know it's a crazy idea, but maybe the reason we should focus on kids uh, in school is that they might actually learn something useful. So um, I am circling back to the topic of guest workers, immigrant labor, all of the fun things that we talked about in our main conversation. Um, The piece that I wish I'd written this week is called A Disturbing Trend in Agriculture, Prisoner-Picked Vegetables. It's at Take Part, and it is by Rebecca McRae. And it is a piece about the way that we are moving back to, apparently, the convict leasing system. Convict oh, leasing. I that. Yeah. It's been no, such a long time. It's, yeah. Convict leasing was something that happened after emancipation, wherein prisoners were then leased to the same plantation owners who had recently owned people as slaves. And you don't have to work real hard to think about what color the skin of the people who were being leased was, do you? So what's happening now is because states like Idaho, Georgia, etc. are cracking down on immigration and immigrants, the same people who they usually count on to pick the Vidalia onions or apples or any other crops that we all like to eat, they have a lack of workers to do that work. So instead of doing what Econ 101 would teach us you are supposed to do, and raise wages in order to attract the workers to do the work, they're cutting deals with the state to have prisoners do the work. And one representative that um, McRae interviewed in this piece laughed when she asked about the convict leasing and the slavery um, implications here and joked, slaves don't get paid. But as McRae points (laughs) out... A private employer that hires prison laborers can pay them less than it pays other workers and need not be concerned with sick days, vacation time, or insurance. Prison workers can't unionize to protect themselves and can't effectively file workplace complaints. While Lodge is correct that these workers are getting paid, the comparisons to a normal workplace end there. 
depending on the state, part of a prisoner's wages are returned to the Department of Corrections, while more may go to victim restitution, court fees, and other debts. In the end, these workers see take-home pay that's far less than minimum wage. Gives a whole new meaning to the term prison industrial complex, doesn't right. it? And, right. So they are, they're stressing that these are voluntary programs that prisoners can take part in or not as they wish. But McRae points out that there are many punishments for workers who choose not to participate. And, of course, this is, you know, I mean, I, I liked this story because it touches on so many things about our screwed up political and economic system, the way we depend on immigrants to, quote, do the jobs Americans won't do, and then we punish them for coming here to do the same thing, that we are constantly on the lookout for new populations of exploitable workers, see our entire conversation on today's podcast, and we are really, really opposed to doing the thing that our supposed capitalist economic system says we are supposed to do, which is when you can't get workers to do the work, you have to raise the wage. Right. And ignoring the fundamental concept that if you are not free to control your own body or your economic destiny, like the, the idea that people choose to do these jobs, that they're just free agents, yeah. you know, like yeah. employed, you know, at will employees, so to speak. Um, the, the idea of freedom here is completely a sham. Well, right. And we, we know that prison mass incarceration in this country serves as a way to sort of lock up and do away with our, our surplus labor population. But now if we see a massive shift to the use of prison labor for private companies, um, I mean, prisoners are already doing work in the prisons. Yeah. Um, if we're seeing an, yet another massive shift to prisoners being forced to do all kinds of labor. We're seeing them not only as just a place to store and lock up people who otherwise, you know, might be I don't know, having a life outside of jail. We're seeing them literally used as a way to provide cheap labor and keep wages low. Yeah. So. Just like that song, The Chain Gang, right? Oh, oh and uh, another, just to add to the litany of ironies here, um, there are actually immigration detention centers that actually do uh, technically, you know, employ uh, the detained immigrants to do those prison jobs within, you know, the detention center. So it's layers interesting. upon layers. Yeah, sort of, of an interchange of imprisoned bodies in various settings. So, on that cheerful note, <laughs> we come to the end of our one-year anniversary Freedom. podcast. Yes. Tell your state representatives that you don't want prisoners being forced to pick the vegetables that you eat or being forced to do, well, any kind of labor that they don't Or anyone being have forced to do to labor for next-to-nothing wages, for God's sake. Right. Yes. As always, you can send us your stories, your tips, your suggestions, your questions at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or at tweet them at us at hashtag belabored. And we will be back. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate to the fact, hell no, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.